that. <laughs> you said. I forgot the line there, so I just kind of went yeah. with what I know. Do I hear a funny story about this movie? Yes. They actually, when they released this in the stage, they changed the name because they were worried people were going to think it was a black exploitation movie. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't they change it to Silent Night, Deadly Night? No, it was Silent Night, Evil Night. Ah, okay, but yeah. very reminiscent to uh, the other Christmas movies we've watched. I was going to say, how appropriate a connection to our previous Christmas episodes. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And today, for our third Christmas episode, we are taking a break from the Silent Night, Deadly Night film franchise, and instead, a Canadian classic, which has become retroactively recognized as a classic full stop of the horror genre, we're watching Black Christmas, the original, not those shitty remakes. They made remakes of this movie? Shitty ones, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, a very, very jolly and uh, festive Christmas tale. It's basically Christmas with the Cranks, only <laughs> set in Canada. <laughs> yeah, same thing, right? Um, yeah. I was expecting Tim Allen to show up at some point here. I thought sure. that was going to be appropriate in this film. Maybe we get a little bit of Elf. Alf? Elf. Actually, I was loving yeah. that cat. Yeah, we sure. didn't see a lot of cat eating. Guy talked about it though for a minute or two. Yeah, I yeah. agree. The guy he in the mentioned phone. he mentioned some fuck. He wanted to <laughs> do a little cat eating himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you can't tell, we've already had a few drinks today because, in keeping with our new holiday tradition, we did our twelve beer Christmas draft. We actually uh, put that out as a separate bonus episode because uh, last year trying to fit it in with the main episode was too challenging. We're enjoying, or have been enjoying, and are continuing to enjoy 12 <laughs> beers from the Whippersnapper Brewery in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. We always try and pair a beer with the movie. They're Christmas beers. It's a Christmas movie, although not really. There's not a lot of Christmas in this besides some lights. Yeah, that's one of my biggest complaints about this movie in general is it feels like false advertising. Well, there are carolers now that I think about it. Yeah, I mean... Carol it, singers. It happens around Christmas time, but it is not a movie that is at all about Christmas. I mean, is Silent Night, Deadly Night about Christmas, or is it about a guy killing a bunch of people? Yes, but he also dresses up as Santa to go slaughter all What about Silent Night, Deadly Night 2? I mean, taking out the garbage is pretty much like what you do on Christmas morn. Isn't that the Boxing Day? <laughs> is, that, is that what? Actually, Christmas I that's, morn? I guess that's a Boxing Day tradition is getting rid of the garbage. They right? don't have Boxing Day in the U.S. Don't alienate our American listeners. Oh, I'm sorry, Americans. This is the day when we get sales. But you know it as December 26th. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they were more Christmas um, adjacent than this is. Definitely. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. Wait, did we already do that? Yeah, I think so, but that's okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> We've had a lot to drink We're tonight. rolling. We knew this was going to be yeah. the, perhaps the drunkenest episode of the year, and we are right on pace for that. <laughs> so, uh, we, as we already mentioned, we're watching. We've already watched. We're discussing Black Christmas, the now legendary horror movie. Not so much when it came out. Middling reviews. Uh, you know, retroactively, it's had a kind of critical renaissance. My understanding is that this was a Canadian release first. Yes. And that it was like received okay in Canada, but they tried to take it to the U.S. and not a lot of sort of studios wanted to take it on or bring it forward. So interestingly enough, this is kind of one of the earliest movies where there was a sort of more gratuitous violence, shocking almost for the time, than what had been kind of the norm. Like fairly tame by today's standards, but I think it's important that we keep that historical context in mind as we go through this today. I didn't know what I was getting into while watching this. And 
it felt like you were taking me to film school rather than on a Christmas holiday. This is another one of these things where people could be like, why is this on your podcast? It's not a bad movie. But every so often we do that. We watch a movie that is like, for one reason or another, was perceived as bad. And we look at it retroactively and say like, well, why was this considered bad? And this is very much, I think, a movie like that, not to spoil our ratings. That will, of course, come later. But before all of that, let's talk about the beer we are drinking today. Now, I mentioned the Whippersnapper brewing 12 beers of, it's not called 12, but what's it called? 12 beers of 12 Christmas beers. <laughs> it's their unfiltered uh, Christmas gift package. So you're supposed to unwrap them and drink them one beer at a time as you approach Christmas. We, we unwrapped all 12 and drafted them, and you can hear it in a bonus episode. It's very short. It won't take much of your day. <laughs> we talked about this already. Yeah, um, I know, I'm repeating it. I'm <laughs> repeating right, it for good. emphasis. All right, good. Um, but yeah, that's well, not the only beer. That wasn't enough for you. So you decided hey, you, br- we need- you brought me this beer. You decided we need to drink another one. So we've covered the Christmas side of Black Christmas, and now we need to get to the black side. And so we're going to be drinking the Black Dog. Yeah, that's right. It's Blackout Christmas here on the BMB podcast. Yeah, we are going to be too drunk to function before the end of this episode. So uh, we're drinking Black Lager from Cured Craft Brewing. Company. Thank Christ, it's a lager. Yeah, so this is a lot of the beers in this 12 beer pack were heavy (laughs) stouts and IPAs. Yeah, we've been drinking six to nine percent beers uh, throughout the course of this movie. So this is going to bring us back down to earth. Um, But uh, I'm excited to drink this. Uh, Cure Craft Brewing is a really cool small craft brewery. They are in Leamington, Ontario, just outside of Point Pelee National Park. So it's kind of the most southern point in continental Canada. So it's a really cool brewery in a very cool town. So if you ever get a chance to go visit Cured, I definitely recommend it. They have a lot of different beers on tap and also a bunch you can take away in cans. And we brought this one, the the Black Dog, back. So I'm looking forward to trying it. I actually didn't get a chance to drink it while I was there. So this would be my first time with the Black Lager. The Black Dogger. <laughs> Me too. No, I'm excited for this one, especially because, as I mentioned, the other beers in this Whippersnapper unfiltered pack it's been pretty heavy on the ABV, so a nice, hopefully crisp, hopefully clean, 5% black lager. I'm on board with it. What do you say we crack this open and get started? Oh, I'm ready for it. I just fucking chugged that other Christmas beer so I can get into it. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, that was a mistake. Oh, but it was delicious. We open on a shot of a house that's been thoroughly decorated for the holidays. It's like our only Christmas connection in this whole movie. And the sound of a choir singing Silent Night. But I bet it won't be. I mean, it's going to get quiet for the people who get fucking murdered. Well, that's true. It's going to get real quiet. Yeah, silent for them. Um, this is a big house. Uh, I'm yeah. trying, it's kind of like mansion-like. I'm interested to see where it is. And they pan in, and we quickly see some Greek letters. Well, yeah, we learned that this house is the home to the Pi Kappa Sigma sorority. And shortly after one of the girls enters, we get a now-cliched point-of-view shot of someone approaching the house, complete with the obligatory heavy breathing. Inside the house, the girls are having a party. It seems like a pretty low-key affair. Maybe they're just wrapping up. And as the mysterious heavy breather moves around the property, we see that he can very easily enter the house. There's like an attic door or skylight or something that they definitely aren't locking. So way to make this hard for him, ladies. Yeah. Um, the very first time we get the POV shot of what I can only assume is our villain of the movie, it happens really early. I think the breathing is a little bit overdone, but I like the shot. And then <laughs> That's it gets putting like, it mildly. Oh. This guy sounds like he just ran a marathon or that he is actively <laughs> one out as he walks around this house. <laughs> like, literally. 
Yeah, he wanders up. He kind of looks in the window and sees that they're there and then quickly finds a lattice that he can climb all the way up into the attic of the house, right? And who locks their attic, right? Who who lets that there? Uh, I do after yeah, watching I mean, this shit. Yeah, yeah, oh, my yeah. God. I actually struggled to go to bed after watching this, by the way. Did you really? Yeah, oh, yeah. It took me a while to fall asleep after watching this. It is effectively creepy. I agree. Now, we learned a couple of other things in this opening scene. First, that Barb, who seems like kind of the queen bee of the sorority, has a real bee for a mom. She basically calls Barb up to the shit on her and second that one of the sorority girls is being played by canadian comedy legend andrea martin one of the stars of sgtv who and i know we say this every time looks way older than the early 20 something character she's supposed to be playing that's fair she is playing phyllis i think which again like talk about an early 20 something common name yeah you give her the oldest lady name you can um, yeah, Barb clearly was expecting her mother to be there for her for the holidays, and she fails her. She calls her a gold-plated whore, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. I yeah. thought that was an interesting way to talk to your mother. But I guess if your mother is too busy f***ing men to see you over the holidays, you would feel upset too. Barb's going to go skiing, though. It'll ease her mind. Well, Cheer I mean, a bit. she plans to go, and she kind of pressures Phyllis and one other girl to go with her. Phyllis, who again, and I cannot overstate this, Looks way older than the rest of the sorority girls. I mean, you're right. If if their house mother wasn't so, like, old and decrepit looking, she would have looked like she was the house I thought mother. she was when I first saw her. Now, there's a key difference here that we should mention, because normally we complain about this. Actors playing teenagers look way older than actors. The difference here is... She isn't just like older than the character's age. She looks noticeably older than every other character. Like when I first saw her, I was like, is she an RA or something? A marm? Does a sorority have a marm? And they do, but it's actually not her. <laughs> it's really funny that you pointed this out so much because I didn't notice. Are you shitting me? No. You didn't think she's out of place in this? No, I didn't feel like she was out of place for wow. her age. I thought she was just the Jewish one. <laughs> where I went. I was like, we'll just put in the token Jew. <laughs> she doesn't look... No, hang on a second. She looks so much older than the rest of them. I didn't get it at all. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was yeah. a conservative <laughs> look. Oh, God. Did we bleep that? I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, well, happy Hanukkah. However, however you think, Andrea Martin does or doesn't look too old. Shortly after Barb wraps things up with her mom, the house gets another phone call, this time from someone they refer to as the moaner. Clearly, he's called before, and although they don't know much about him, Barb's pretty sure it's just one guy, as evidenced by this exchange. Could that be one person? No, Claire, that's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. Barb just shitting on oh, Claire. I mean, Barb shits on Claire. Claire. Claire is the house square, right? She's kind of like the more conservative of them. I guess. Barb is just dumping on her, though. I mean, Barb dumps on everybody <laughs> in this movie. She's she's dealing with some family drama, and she takes it out on everybody. Yeah, definitely. Now, by the end of the call, the motor has gone from weird choking and fapping sounds to straight-up dirty talk, calling them all c**ts and threatening to lick their p**ties. Threatening? <laughs> this uh, this phone call ends after Barb gets in the line and tells him to fuck off. He tells her he's going to kill her and then hangs up. We get another fantastic Claire-Barb exchange here, as Claire correctly suggests that Barb shouldn't provoke this guy, pointing out that a local town girl got raped a couple of weeks ago. Barb's got a retort for this one, too. She says, Darling, you can't rape a townie. 
Ooh, that's catty. Oh, it's incredibly catty. This Barb <laughs> character great. is off the wall in her attitude for sure. Yeah. She does not care at all about this guy who was threatening to both eat and then murder her. The phone call is creepy, and it, we get the sense that this isn't the first time, obviously. No, he that says, called, yeah, right? they, they refer to their, they, it's Moner again, essentially, is the subtext. But there hasn't been any, like, murders or problems before this. Uh, well, unless you count that town girl. Is it the same person? We don't really know. Uh, but, can I just point out here, Claire is right about everything. Oh, yeah, that we yeah. should not provoke him, yeah. that we should probably not be so perverse, and that yeah. we should, uh, like, be nicer to our boyfriends and our dads. Uh, she's right, but that won't stop her from being the killer's first victim, which is so unfair, yeah. isn't it? Well, poor, poor Claire. Claire. Is this a message they're sending us? Like, why be so, like, pious and chaste? If Live life to the fullest? Yeah, yeah, I'm wondering. There's, right? There may not be a tomorrow. Yeah? Yeah. I think that's what they're telling us here. God damn. Deep subtext to this. Oh, my God, yes. Well, Claire heads upstairs to put some lotion on those burns that Barb gave her, and it turns out the killer is hiding in her closet behind some dry cleaning bags. We get in her point of view shot through the clear plastic, which is actually pretty cool, and he quickly suffocates her after she gets as close as possible to find out who's there. Why would you get that close if you think someone's there? I know, it is pretty creepy. Uh, she thinks the cat's there. She hears the cat, and she goes to look for the cat. Claude is his name. That's right, yeah. which is kind of clever. I like that cat name. French-Canadian? Yeah, well, and he's got claws. So she... You just blew my mind. <laughs> you weren't ready for that. I okay. wasn't ready for that. Oh. I spit my beer out. <laughs> ah. So she goes to check for this cat, and she also wonders whether there's something else behind there. And the smothering effect is actually quite effective. I thought for the time that it was a pretty good murder. He wraps the bag around her head and just suffocates. Just smothers her, which is interesting. It also gets me thinking about this creepy phone stuff and how like ineffective it would be today we talk about this sometimes i think it would work better today because you, you can have a, you can be anywhere with a cell phone so you think the it's coming from inside the house works better it'd today. be easier to be yeah. calling someone from inside the house because you would just have your cell phone inside the house you know what i mean but you just like if you would either get your caller display it would tell you who it is you or you wouldn't that. or you wouldn't answer it that's the problem with it. You'd be getting a voice. Nobody from answers it. Yeah, it'd be like a voicemail from someone breathing yeah. and being. Yeah, it's yeah. A good point. Nobody answers it if you don't see who it is. Right? That's true. Like it's not yeah. in the same way that it used to be. So I just, I mean, we shouldn't focus on that too much because I think this movie is interesting in that. No, it, this is this is the point that technology has done a good thing by eliminating the ability for serial killers to call from inside and harass, the house and and from anywhere and harass their victims. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we're good there. Um, so Claire eats it. What I found was strange is, so she's gone, and we're going to move on to the sort of, like, continuation of the movie, but nobody finds her. Yeah, I had a weird thing with that, too. Like, it becomes almost a joke in a sense, because even, spoiler alert, even by the end of the movie, they haven't found her. I was very confused about what room she was in at different times. It took me a while to kind of get the, the physical layout of the house. Also, you would think that one of the 20 other people in the house might have heard her getting murdered. You know what I mean? And she but, gets suffocated, so yeah. maybe she couldn't scream, or it's hard to hear that. Well, and they're also getting a visit from the actual marm. I think it's called a house mother, Mrs. Mack. What would you think of this old broad? Oh, my God. Did you what? like her? No. <laughs> no? What a fucking disastrous character. <laughs> She's got brandy hidden all over the oh goddamn Oh, my God, house. everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. She's even cut, like, a brandy bottle into a large book so that she can fucking <laughs> hide brandy. That's a classic, though. That's, it, like, that's it, pretty, that? Isn't that how Prohibition era people used to smuggle uh, booze and stuff? It, well, they do it in all the classic places it's in the toilet tank she also has it in her luggage in the closet like she's got brandy hidden everywhere 
She's constantly chugging it. The girls have given her just the most ugly outfit you could possibly imagine, and she puts it on for them and then shits all over it as she's trying to brush her teeth with Brandy. Yeah, well, they're trolling her by giving it to her, and I think she knows that on some level, but, like, because she eye-rolls them, but they're all like, put it on. They're just like, trying to fuck with her. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's... Everyone's the, a bitch is that, what it comes down to. <laughs> that's the kind of relationship you'd have in a sorority house, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, we get another phone call after this. This is one of the non-murder variety. It's for the house looker, Jess. Her boyfriend, Peter, is calling to say goodnight or something. I wasn't totally clear what he's doing, but they seem to kind of be going through a rough patch. When the call ends, she goes to check on Claire or maybe ask for advice about her relationship problems. She knocks but doesn't go in, which is too bad because we could have gotten a nice little scream here. What do we end up seeing that Jess doesn't? Oh, we end up seeing the smothered body of Claire, right? That first yeah. girl. And the Jess. bag's still wrapped around her head. And it's pretty good. She somehow ends up in a rocking chair. I guess he just posed her in a rocking chair. This guy's yeah. kind of doing some weird, like, cosplay something from his childhood. Yeah, they don't really tell us throughout this movie. He's definitely going through or reliving events with a female person in his life. Uh, maybe a sister, maybe a cousin or a friend or a mother, but... He drags Claire's body out of the bedroom in which he smothered her into the attic and positions her on a chair, and we kind of get some rocking there. We we think that some others might discover her, but not yet. Well, that's the part I didn't really catch, because is Jess knocking on the attic door or Claire's door? Because she knocks on this door, and then it cuts to the thing of Claire's body, so you think it's in that room. Yeah. No, it was definitely Claire's door. Okay, but Claire um, is in the attic. Yes, exactly. That's a weird cut. That kind of was disorienting in and, a way. And they didn't do it in a clear way. Like, no. That was that was one of my complaints about this was the transition to the body being out of that room and into the attic was not shown or explained in a coherent way. They also pose her in that chair in front of the window that's very visible from the outside of the house. Okay, except it's like a third story window. It's the attic of a three story house. If you are on the ground and you look up, you're not going to see in the room. You're going to have the angle where you kind of see the window, but not what's behind it. You would have to basically be across from it in a similar height, similar story of a house. But the way the layout of the street appears to be, there is no house directly across the way. That at least to me makes a little bit more sense. I feel like, and based on some of the shots they show of the window from the exterior of the house, you could see her in the window from the street. Well, you might see that somebody was there. Yes. And I guess if Claire's missing, you might be like, hey, you I saw someone in the window. You might go check the attic. <laughs> you might fair. go look up yeah. there. Well, from there, we dissolve to an exterior shot of a church, and the camera tilts down to reveal an old man pacing back and forth with a concerned look on his face. Or at least there was a concerned look on his face before it gets wiped off by a snowball. Turns out that the old man is Claire's father. He's there to bring her home for the holidays. And this is about to get awkward. Yeah. He's supposed to pick his daughter up, but she does not show up on time. And he's clearly worried. Uh, This snowball that kind of knocks off his glasses and wakes him up is from a kid on a field trip. Yeah, they've brought some kids for some kind of like fundraiser or like Santa Claus visit. One of the guys at the college is dressed up like Santa Claus. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um... A like a member of the college, a dude comes over and apologizes. He knows Claire. He is from the sort of the the brother for fraternity. brother fraternity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he says or points out where the sorority house is, and so Claire's father's going to go over there and sort of see where his daughter has ended up. Yeah, and this is the point where I figured out that she was not in her room because that's where they go and look for her, and they find her bags all packed, ready to go home. 
The dad also discovers some pictures and posters that he's none too happy about. I didn't send my daughter here to be drinking and picking up boys. Which is hilariously naive and indicative of the time this movie was made. Like, what person sending their daughter to college does not realize she's going to get plowed by a bunch of dudes? You've got a daughter, you know this. <laughs> well, I haven't come to terms with that yet. Well, you better come to terms yeah. with it fast, because when she goes, that's going to happen. I'm fully for female empowerment. As long as she makes choices with people who respect her, she can enjoy that. Um, no, it's, it is funny, right? And it is very much of the times. The interactions between the house marm and this father are pretty funny, but they take way too long. I think they spend too much time on this because she is clearly a drunken mess and he's just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why is my daughter here? He's a real, he's a square. You want it? This is where Claire gets it from, I guess. Oh yeah. Clearly they're showing you that Claire follows the rules because dad is that way too. Yeah, now this is where, like I said, I pieced together the body is in the attic. We do see it in the window on the rocking chair there. And what we get next is the most unrealistic scene in the whole movie. Jess tells Peter that she's pregnant. I guess that explains some of her emotions around that phone call earlier. And his response is, that's great. He even tries to talk her out of having an abortion. Uh, And I'm like, what 20-year-old dude would be like, you know what? I really insist that you have this baby. I mean, this is also a big indicator of the time, right? This is sort of what would have happened um, at the time that this was going on. You wouldn't have had a lot of dudes been like, end it and let's but keep if moving the, on and plowing. But if the lady comes to you and is like, I want to abort this baby, you're going to be like, no, 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 hang on. I insist that we ruin both of our lives. I think at the time, yes. I think that was, I, I think disagree. abortion was not like looked upon in a as acceptable way. I agree with you, but I think for that reason that nine times out of 10, the woman would not want to do that because she would feel the pressure. And if you are that guy and she comes, you say, I want to do this. The guy would be like, I hit the fucking jackpot guys. You won't believe it. I feel like you're projecting. <laughs> Come on, man. That's not true. I'm sorry, but uh, listen, I could have a bunch of kids out there Well, that. Yeah, uh, I know. And you'd rather not. Uh, no, that's correct. I don't, know, I don't know why I had to do that. Well, in spite of all this, she still agrees to go to his piano recital. I think it's got a big piano recital or something. Can we can we talk about the timing of her launching this on him? Are you going to blame her for this? How can you do this to me, Jess? I have my big recital. Now who's being misogynistic? I, would you drop the news that you're pregnant and going to abort the child the day before your partner? Not the, like hours before. Hours before your partner is about to do their recital that gets them into the like spot they want at the conservatory. It seems like strange timing. It's kind of dick timing. There's no way that that yeah. would have happened. So we know after hearing about this, it's going to go horrible. But we head back to Jess and she gets another creepy phone call. Meanwhile, Claire's dad has gone to the police along with Barb and Andrea Martin for some reason. And Barb is being her usual confrontational self. Is this supposed to be comedy? Like her fucking with the police? I I don't really get Barb's character. They are throwing her out there in a lot of different ways, right? She's kind of pushing plot. She's also kind of the comedy. I'm finding that at this point, the build is a tiny bit slow. I'm thinking that it's kind of for the time. Barb convinces a police officer at the station to write down that the new aerial code is fallacious. It's the exchange. It's the first two like things you dial on the rotary phone. Like in The Simpsons, it's always Klondike 5, whatever. But like, yeah, it's, hers is F-E for fellatio. 
And so the guy, the stupid cop at the front, writes down fellatio in... That pays off later, too. We know yeah. this is going to be funny, right? He's, he is very much a dimwit. They establish that early and often. No one can find Claire. So Jess goes to ask Claire's boyfriend, Chris, if he's seen her. Now, he's in the middle of hockey practice, which is a clear sign this is a Canadian production. And after a quick cut to Peter completely bombing his piano performance, Chris storms into the police station with Jess in tow to find out why the hell they aren't doing anything about his missing lady friend. And who takes his complaint at the station? It's horror legend John Saxon, who we recently saw playing another police role in Nightmare Beach. I guess maybe he got transferred to Nightmare Beach after this movie. <laughs> I was actually really excited to see him here. He's in a lot of horror movies. He is legit. He's like the Tom Atkins of, uh, I guess Tom Atkins is also the Tom Atkins yeah, of horror movies. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Tom horror, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I was I was excited, one, to recognize him. That made me excited. I was like, look it, I'm learning and growing on you this sure journey are, under here. Yeah. So I was excited about that. I was glad to see him. Um, I'm at this point in the movie wondering if they're trying to set up that the killer is someone we've seen. I mean, God, they lay that on later. Thick. We're getting a lot yeah. of different people who are going through shit who could be the killer, and I'm wondering where it is. And I think that that's a good sign, right? They're keeping me kind of guessing and thinking about it. I'm trying to figure out what are red herrings, what might be real. The police detective, Saxon, right? Um, he knows Chris. He knows the boyfriend of our missing girl. And this sort of gets him moving on the case. Definitely. Now, after this, we get a padding scene. It's a dinner at the sorority house. Claire's dad is hanging around and clearly distraught, but that doesn't stop a very drunk Barb from sharing some incredible facts about animal sexuality. This is very informative and educational. But then the curtain gets pulled back and we see that Barb is clearly acting out because she feels guilty that Claire's disappearance is her fault. And I've got bad news for her. She's definitely not going to feel less guilty when they find Claire's body. If they find Claire's body. Which they don't, which is insane. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm like, yeah. Barb is in for a fucking tough go of it here, and she never really gets that. No, it's interesting, right? We're starting to get this message of almost like good parent versus bad parent. Claire was clearly the good child, and she has a dad who's kind of like strict in old school. Yeah, for what fucking good it did her. Well, it didn't, but Barb is clearly a disaster, and that's because her mother is a slut. But it also doesn't work out good for her, so. No, so it doesn't I mean, matter. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's true. It just feels like now they're trying to send a be a good parent message. I mean, it seems like Barb, is, is Barb's guilt caused by Claire's father being there? That's a good question. Possibly, right? She sees this guy who's there. He clearly is upset. He's worried about his daughter. Maybe she is missing that from her own life. So because of that, it intensifies her guilt. Very possible. I think possible. Yeah. Good reading, sure. Noel. Oh, good reading you. of the... I, I mean, yeah. I knew when you gave me this movie, about seven minutes in, this was a test. <laughs> You think so? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, after another quick Peter scene, he very dramatically smashes his piano. Although it almost certainly can't be his piano, right? Like, I feel like he might owe the college some money after that. Oh, yeah. No, he has just smashed the shit out of the conservatory's grand piano. He owes them, like, three grand, right? Like, at Oh, least. my God. At least. Yeah. A, like, a nice grand piano that you would test on is probably in the tens of thousands of dollars. Well, he fucked that up. Uh, Jess and Chris grab Andrea Martin from the sorority house because John Saxon has organized a volunteer search for Claire's body. That only leaves Barb and Mrs. Mack in the house, and after a quick shot letting us know that the killer is once again outside the house, somebody finally finds Claire's body. It's Mrs. Mack. She goes looking around after hearing her cat purr and calling his name 50 fucking times. Claude? Claude? 
Claude. <laughs> Fuck, dude. Like, she goes in even a million. Get, oh. Fucking get to it. Just, I was like, by the end, I was like, just kill her already, please. Yeah, it was dragged on a little bit too long. Her character was super annoying, and I wasn't upset to see her take it. There's kind of a cool camera angle where she's climbing up the stairs into this creepy attic, and she sees the body and then turns around to see the killer holding a hook, and he releases that hook, and it snags right into her. Can we talk about this giant hook? Is there some kind of heavy-duty pulley system in the attic? What is this, and why? Well, I think it's right over the attic entrance because if you wanted to lift heavy things into your attic and you only have a ladder... It would be hard to carry. So they use the hook to lower it down to the main floor and carry up all the things that have been stored there. Well, bad news for Mrs. Mac, because like you said, she eats that fucking hook right in the head. She's hung on that for the remainder of this film. Yeah, they also don't find her body. It's Which is her and Claire up the attic hanging out. I, that's We're going to talk about it later, but the most baffling thing to me is that despite finding that all these murders have happened in this house, nobody searches the goddamn attic. I know, it's infuriating. This was weird, this whole sequence here, but even weirder is what happens after. We get another point of view shot from the killer, and he starts freaking out. Out, screaming and moaning and running all over the attic. He starts rocking the chair that Claire's corpse is sitting on. What the hell is this guy doing? It's really creepy, though. Like, the fact yeah. that it's so, um, like, undefined. Like, it's so psychotic and it's so broken that it's, it's really kind of interesting. You see Claire smothered, but also holding, like, a burned doll as he kind of, like, rocks the chair for her in the doll. He feels regret for these actions, yet he can't help himself from doing it, it seems. It's a really, really interesting character that they've created as a murderer. It's hard, I think for lots of people because they're not clarifying who he is. Well, I was going to say, right? you say he's a character, we know nothing about him. But I think that adds a level of sort of fear or cynicism behind it that you wouldn't have if they were showing and or like describing who it was. See, I kind of went the other way and I'm very curious now to see how our ratings go. I think we might be like far apart in this one, okay. but I guess we're going to see. Uh, we've got bad times at the volunteer search. Somebody finds a body and starts screaming, but of course, we know it isn't Claire. I guess it's some local missing girl that was mentioned earlier. So Jess goes back to the sorority house where she immediately gets another phone call from the killer. As always, his message is garbled nonsense, but at one point, he appears to say the phrases, please stop, I know what you did to me, and he also screams various things about someone named Billy. She quickly calls the police, but as it's ringing, we see a shadow followed by footsteps coming down the stairs behind her. Don't worry, though. It's just Peter. I guess he got tired of waiting for her and decided to take a nap. Yeah, this is interesting. Peter showing up and being there after the killer is clearly suspicious, and it's also one of those red herring moments, right? Oh, it's a big one. They really lay him out to be the killer in this. Yeah, we're getting a lot of that from the Peter character. Him smashing the piano, things falling apart, uh, him being there right after that kill had yeah. happened on the, the mother. And the phone call. Yeah, so all of that's kind of happening now. The way that he connects with Jess here, though, is not in a like menacing way. He tells her he wants to marry her. Uh, I disagree with you completely. This is extremely menacing. I guess you're right. Uh, he comes down those stairs and he's got everything figured out. He's quitting the conservatory. They're going to get married and she is going to have that baby. Now, unbelievably, Jess isn't exactly on board with this idea. Turns out she's got stuff she'd like to accomplish in her life. And I kind of thought to myself, this is a pretty strong statement for feminism here. But predictably, he does not take that well. 
No, she ends up having to kick him out of the house, I believe, because he is not doing a good job of taking no for an answer here. Yeah, that's putting him fucking mildly. Yeah, he needed to go. Um, Her body, her choice. We don't have to get political on this podcast. I apologize, everyone, for Noel just shamelessly flaunting his political views. I don't apologize at all for saying that statement. Oh, my God. I apologize again for Noel <laughs> apologizing. So we, we transition from there to the we get police a, station. Yeah, we get a brief moment of levity here as John Saxon tries to call the sorority house and sees fellatio 20880 as the phone number. He asks the dim-witted sergeant about it, which leads to this fun back and forth. What's this? Well, that's the number at the sorority house. Fellatio? Yeah, it's a new exchange. F-E. New exchange? Yeah, fellatio. One of the girls that was in this afternoon gave it to me. She gave it to you? Yeah. Wordplay. That's right. Yeah. So we go from the, like, discussion of abortion straight into jokes about fellatio. Sunrise, sunset. Yeah. There or we I go. guess sunset, sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. If it had been fellatio between Jess and Peter, we wouldn't be in this situation. Absolutely. But it's not. So yeah, just, we got a problem. You could have just bl- would have avoided all this. Yeah, yep. exactly. Bad or anal. I mean, yeah, you can't yeah. get pregnant from your you ass. You sure can't. That's the policy you live by. That's the policy you live by. Yeah. <laughs> John Saxon decides to swing by the sorority house to take a look around. He gets there just in time to see Peter storming out after his argument with Jess. And the plan is they're going to tap the phone lines. They've also got a man stationed outside, but I'm guessing that guy isn't great at his job as he doesn't notice Peter kind of, but not really hiding behind a tree. Dude is clearly visible. He's out in the snow without a coat, just staring at the house. He's suspicious as fuck. Come on, guys. Yeah, the police work in this is not great. Saxon seems to be the only competent police officer in the entire force. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Um, When he goes, he brings a second character with him. I don't know, is his name Graham or something? He's a phone technician. Yes, this guy. Actually, I really enjoyed him being in this because... It gives us a great insight into the way that the police used to have to tap phones based on the technology of, like, 1974. It's crazy that this guy has to run all over the place to fucking find out what line is being dialed. Like, it's insane. I actually found those moments where he was in the, like, phone reception center running through the hallways of phone lines, figuring out where it was coming from. Fairly engaging. So interesting, isn't it? Was it was actually yeah. quite effective. I was like, this is really weird. I, I did not expect to enjoy seeing a dude run down hallways trying to find the correct line. So... I don't know. It was pretty cool. I like the fact that they were tapping the phone and showing us how it goes. We go from this wiretap thing. I'm feeling a little bit like the movie's slow here, but I like the build. I'm connected to the characters, and this killer is sufficiently creepy. The only thing I'm lacking at this point is Christmas Connection. Yeah, there's not a lot of that, and you mentioned the slow pace. We do play the waiting game now. Jess waiting by the house phone, John Saxon waiting by the phone at the station where the call is going to go, and right on cue... We see the killer climbing down the ladder from the attic. Jess hears what sounds like screaming coming from Barb's room, but it turns out she's just got asthma and a bad dream she had triggered it. And what happened in that bad dream, you ask? A strange man came into her room to attack her. Wait a minute. Yeah, clearly he'd been in there. She woke up just before he could do the act and he escaped somehow. Yeah, I think that was the fucking guy. What do you mean? I think it really happened. I don't think it was the dream. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) 
<laughs> God damn it. It was clearly the killer was in there, and uh, she woke up just before he could murder her. And then she went back to sleep again, like, right away. Yeah, which is so fucking bullshit, right? Like, did Jess, was Jess the one who gave her the puffer? Yes, Jess gives it to her. Yeah, so Jess kind of saves her with the puffer, only so that she can be brutally murdered shortly. Well, I was going to say, speaking of bullshit, Jess, who should definitely be on high alert at this point, gets distracted by some adorable Christmas carolers, which allows the killer to enter Barb's room again and murder her with the unicorn statue. The caller also says something that sounds awfully familiar. He uses the phrase, like getting a wart removed, which is exactly how Peter described Jess's attitude towards aborting their unborn child. But it couldn't be him, could it? <laughs> this whole section is interesting, right? Because we get that murder scene. He murders her with a glass unicorn, just stabs her repeatedly in here. And this is actually the first kind of gory kill we get. I felt like the other two were kind of subtle comparatively. Yeah, there's some blood in this one for sure. And so, he's going up and down with the unicorn statue. Yeah, we get a bit of a gore kill. The carolers are interesting, and we all we get some shots of Jess. What almost looks like she's thinking about children in a positive way. Well, she sees these lovely, innocent carolers before they get called off because they found a dead body in the woods. It's going there for a minute, and then it quickly just cancels it. It quickly cancels it, but I do feel like they're trying to tell you that she's wrestling with this decision, right, of whether to have the child or not. Oh, I don't know. I think she's pretty firmly on the side of she's getting rid of it. My body, my choice, as you said earlier, when you alienated half our audience. <laughs> so Barb's dead. The killer is murdered her while the children are seeing carols. Jess is kind of curious about what she's going to do. Um, we get the creepy Billy and Agnes kind of conversation going on in the killer's head. And I like this kind of depiction of the killer. It's sort of a, I don't know if it's multiple identities or if. It seems like it. It seems like it might be. Or the killer has had experiences in their childhood where Agnes was was the one who PTSD kind of yeah thing. where it kind of seems like so um Barb dies as the choir ends and they head off and we get another phone call this section feels like padding to me in a weird way because after the killer calls Jess she doesn't mention the wart thing to the cops but then Peter calls crying and after that she ends up explaining it to the cops anyway so why not just cut out the whole part with the emotional Peter call you know what I mean? Like, I get it. These are supposed to be fake outs because if the killer's in the house and Peter is calling, he can't possibly be the killer because he can't possibly be in the house, except they give him an out anyway when John Saxon points out that Peter was in the house the last time the killer called. That's right. It couldn't be Peter. Phil, it couldn't be Peter. He was here. So if you're already doing that, why bother giving him another out? Are they just hoping we'll all forget about the whole house mother has a separate line thing? I see what you're saying. Um, it is strange, right? They they do mention that on purpose, that there are two lines in the house. They are really setting up the payoff that the caller is inside the house. Which, again, it's so cliche now, but at the time it was not. And that's important to remember. And I was kind of feeling that way. I was wondering here if this was going to be the first time that this kind of idea happens. And I think it was. I know what you mean, but in a way, it kind of made it more obvious to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's funny looking back, having the retrospect that that is going to be what happens. Like, I knew that that's going to be the result of this movie. And it's in some ways sad that I knew that because of other movies and not this one. Well, yeah, we're viewing this having seen almost 50 years of movies since then. And that definitely affected. As soon as they mentioned the house has their own line, I'm like, the call was coming from inside. You know what I mean? I wrote it down, know. too. It was quoted yeah. in my notes before. 
before it happened. But I think it's really cool that this is sort of a place where it happened first. Definitely. Now, we get an extremely low-grade jump scare after this when a member of the volunteer search party outside the sorority house's window startles Andrea Martin and finally gets them to consider locking their windows indoors. That took a fucking while. Uh, They quickly go to do that, but before they get to the attic, Andrea Martin hears Barb's door close. She goes to see if Barb's awake, and we actually get a cool shot from the hallway here where she walks into the room and the door suddenly slams behind her. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty creepy. The scene with the search volunteers, that one seemed unnecessary to me. There's also a comedy scene in here where a cop gets shot in the ass. They're just trying to, like, stick some comedy in here, too, or maybe change the pace so it's not all kind of build and scare. Um, But, yeah, we know Phyllis is in a lot of trouble now. Andrea Martin is not going to be lasting much longer here. Oh, she's done, and we are down to our final girl. It's just Jess now. And when she gets yet another call from the killer, the cops are finally able to trace the call. Now, you'll never believe this, Noel, but the call is coming from inside the house. (laughs) John Saxon, who we should mention, is pretty on top of this thing. He asked the dean of admissions for all the information he has on Peter, and he found his smashed piano. He tries to call the officer they've got stationed outside, but that guy's dead. So they call Jess and tell her to get the hell out, which launches her into her Oscar reel. Oh, man, I was really frustrated that she didn't leave. <laughs> I was so, so mad. Um, but you're right. She kind of, this is her chance. This is Jess. She's, is, so, she's so dramatic in this moment. Oh, my Come God. On. She is definitely the lead of this whole movie, right? 100%. Like she's the one who. She's over the did top she of the get acting. work after this? So, funnily enough, she's probably best known for, before this, she played Juliet in a British production of Romeo and Juliet that was, like, a pretty major deal. Okay. When she was, like, 18, like, a legit teenager. And then after that, like, the fame was so much that she kind of pulled back for a couple years. And this is one of her kind of first things, I think, after coming back into the movie business. All right. But, like, nothing she did was ever as big as that Juliet role. That's fair. So, she is still in the house. She knows she needs to leave. She knows that the killer's in there, but she heads to the fireplace to grab the fire poker. She's got a weapon, and she's going to go check on her friends. Yes, absolutely. Going against the police's orders, she grabs that fire poker and heads upstairs to try to save Andrea Martin and Barb. Obviously, they're dead, which she figures out the second that she opens Barb's door and sees their corpses wrapped around each other. So now she makes a run for it, but the killer chases her into the cellar. He gets hands on her for a minute there, and I'm not totally sure how she got away. It's kind of unclear. I don't know if she, like, hits him or, like, sneaks out of there or goes through a place where he can't get to. It also seems like the killer at this point is a little unsure about killing her. I feel like he is having an internal struggle, and for some reason Jess is the Agnes character that he also kind of connects with she's the one that he's kind of talking to and trying to prevent it so that's the only kind of thing that i can see happening here i mean he mentions some stuff about babies too in some of his phone calls and so maybe the fact that he's overheard her this whole abortion scenario is like he's somehow attached to her for that yeah we don't we don't know this problem is we don't know but either way she's in the cellar clinging to the fireplace poker when someone comes to the window calling her name It's Peter, but despite being sure that he wasn't the killer a few minutes ago, she isn't excited to see him. He breaks a window and enters the cellar, so now it's decision time for Jess. He's acting real normal as he gets closer and closer to her, but we don't see how this turns out until after the cops finally arrive. John Saxon, hearing screams coming from the house, breaks down the front door and rushes to the basement where he finds Peter dead and Jess alive, though not very talkative. Yeah, this whole section happens kind of fast and is fairly confusing, to be honest. 
I thought the scenes of the shadow outside of the windows before we figure out it's Peter was actually quite good. When they pan to the cops and they see, like, Peter dead or bloodied on top of her, I just assumed they were both killed. That was sort of what I thought until we transition to the next day and see her in hospital. Well, she also opens her eyes in that moment. She does look dead, but then they kind of call her name and she's like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, she's not in the hospital. She's in the house. Oh, that's right. I thought they should have taken her to the hospital, and I was confused. Well, of course they should have. They just move her up to her bed? Yeah. Now, I actually love so many things about this scene where the doctor has Jess in bed. Claire's boyfriend, Chris, mentions how he couldn't imagine Jess killing anyone, especially not Peter. They also insert some generic audio of reporters who are there to get the story, but we never see them on screen, so they definitely save money on extras, which is a smart move if you're a low-budget production. It's true. Um, But best of all is the tracking shot they use at the end of this. It takes us past Barb and Claire's bedrooms, down the hallway, and up towards the attic, where we hear many creaking sounds, followed by gentle humming. And as we cut inside the attic, the unmistakable voice of the killer. So he's still alive. And you know what that means? Black Christmas 2, Blacker Christmas. (laughs) Oh, I think this... There's some parts about this movie that I have questions about, but I think the fact that the police never investigated the attic. Fuck, it's the hardest thing about this to deal with. I can't I can't move past it. There's, yeah, me neither. There's no way that neither of those bodies would have been like left there and not recovered and that the, the killer could be in there. Are they insinuating that the killer is still going to get Jess? Or well, they... oh, well, when, the, when this movie actually ends, the last thing we hear is the sound of the house phone ringing repeatedly as the credits roll over another exterior shot of the house with a single policeman on the porch there to, like, patrol, which is actually a fantastic way to end things because we don't know. The phone just rings and rings and rings over the credits, and we have to assume he's calling her and that she's, like, fucking not mobile, so he's probably going to be able to go down there and just, like, you know. He could kill her, um, but I don't, I don't know that he wants to. Like, he could have already, right? Like, are they saying now that we have a Bonnie and Clyde situation? Is Jess fucked after this experience and she's going to be his new Agnes? Or is he going to go finish off the job and take her out too? I don't I don't know. They do leave it ambiguous, and that's actually a really cool ending. It's so weird in a way, almost like haunting, just hearing that fucking phone ring. I actually over really, and over I really, over really, really like the credits. Yeah. I thought it was really, really well done. I th- This, I think, is one of the first times, or, I mean, maybe not one of the first times, but I think it was a major time that a film left something so open and unsettled. Also, I think it's one of the first times where the killer wasn't shown in a very specific way, and I think that had a negative impact on the success of this movie at the time, but has a positive impact on the impression it left on filmmakers later. See, it definitely had a negative impact on my enjoyment of the movie, and we'll get to that in just a second as we transition to our ratings. I, I really think that so much of what you've just said, though, lands, because this is another one of those kind of like does it deserve to be on our podcast movies. If somebody was mad at us for putting this on here, I would totally understand why they felt that way. Because there is so much history to this, there are so many things that you can point to and say, like, this was influenced by Black Christmas. It really kind of shows the value that this movie has, which maybe is a sign that it doesn't deserve to be on our podcast, but again, really middling reviews when it came out. Yeah, I think that's a good point. This is probably one of those movies that didn't have a broad sort of public acceptance, 
But people in the film community or people who liked horror movies were probably like, holy shit, they did some awesome stuff here. Yeah, some stuff you never thought about doing before, for sure. And again, like that's that is important to keep that context in mind as we move into our ratings. The way we always do this, rate the movie on a scale of 1 to 10, we do it two times, 1 to 10 for how bad it is, 1 to 10 for how enjoyable, and the goal is to find movies that are 10 or 10 on both scales, or what we call a crit 20. And for me, I don't have this anywhere close to a 10 for how bad this is. I only have this as a 6. When it came out, not great reviews. It's gone through a critical reappraisal, and I think that's because you can see all the movies that clearly drew on this for inspiration. Having said that, it is a double-edged sword, though, because the fact that so many movies have come along since then ripped it off is what makes a lot of the parts that seem bad or like obvious or cliched sort of seem that way. There are some parts that I definitely think are bad choices. Like, I love Andrea Martin, but whoever cast her in this was not thinking straight. Uh, some of the characters are unnecessarily weird. Mrs. Mack, Claire's dad. There were these strange insertions of comedy that weren't funny or just kind of seemed out of place. Fuck, how about this? Of all the incompetent police characters that we've seen in the movies that we've watched, and there's been a lot of them, you don't sweep the fucking house after you allegedly catch the killer. Like, I get that you think he's dead, but just for the sake of collecting evidence, maybe finding the other bodies that are still up in the fucking attic, and this leave her alone in the bedroom? Terrible fucking job, guys. Truly awful. I cannot believe that police would operate that way, even in the fucking early to mid-70s. So that's a ding for me. I have it as a 6 out of 10 for how bad this is. It's bad. It's not super bad. It's not so bad that it's close to a 10, but I do think that there's enough here that is kind of just not fleshed out in a way that I'm going to give it a six. How do you feel about it? That's fair. Um, it's funny. I, I had no expectations going in, right? And so many of the movies we watch are so bad that they are funny. And this is not one of those movies. Um, it felt like a bit of a test here uh, watching it. I was like, Cooper has sent me an, on assignment here. And you I have to figure this out. Yeah. Um, so the things that were bad for me was I did find it a bit slow. I felt the build took quite a long time. I thought that um, some of the effects were not great, but I also tried to not take that into account too much because of the era. The cops being so incompetent, I found frustrating. Yeah, it's a real problem. I also felt that the lack of connection to Christmas made the title annoying. <laughs> that feels more like enjoyability to me. Uh, I guess maybe yeah. too, but that that to me is something that's annoying. But I didn't find it terribly bad. I found... Right that um, it was effective at setting a mood, at making me anxious, at caring about what happened to the characters, and then also like freaking me out as those phone calls happened and them responding in that way. It was interesting that they did the stereotypical horror movie thing in terms of like not fleeing from those dangers or going towards them, but I well, wondered... Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, yeah. but at least with Jess, you understand why, because she's going, because her friends are up there. Like, Andrea Martin's there, Barbara's up there, and so she, wa- she doesn't want to leave and be selfish. She wants to she go wants help to them. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah no, it's true. I, yeah. yeah, no, I know. I know what you mean. Um, But I, I actually only had it as a five bad. That's fair, I think. I did not think it was a tremendously bad movie compared to... Uh, I have been throwing out this season um, Crit 20s like it's candy. <laughs> You've only done three. Out of a neon backpack, yeah. out of a, like a fanny pack, just a sweet like yeah, you, fanny You've pack. only done three, but you had done like none for the first two seasons of our podcast. Yeah. Or I guess it's one. One, yeah. yeah. It'd, been, it'd been a while, so I've thrown quite a bit of that out there. This one is not even close for me in terms of 
where this movie lands. Uh, I've been pretty generous with my 10 bads, and this one did not feel like a tremendously bad movie to me. I thought it was yeah. a five, and I think I'm giving it some credit for... I think paving the way. I did watch 100%. some of the extras on the DVD, to oh, be honest. Nice. And I think they helped give me a bit of perspective too. You went deep on this. You were on I assignment, did. eh? Wow. Well, yeah, I was like, well, one, I was a little freaked out after watching the movie. I wasn't ready for bed yet, so I needed some more <laughs> information. So I started watching some of the extra features. Yeah. Um, in terms of enjoyability, I thought that the music was really strong, the sound, the mood that was set. I thought that the camera and the breathing of the creepy character was quite good despite the breathing being extra, right? Like I think was, a lot of that character's kind of over the top. Yeah. Yeah. I liked that you never saw the killer. I liked that they kept okay. it a secret, and yeah. I also liked that there was a lack of resolution, right? I yep. like that they didn't tie it up in a neat way and that they they leave it open for you to interpret whether he's going to go murder her or whether she's going to become a part of it in some way or what it looks like. Of course, it was enraging that they didn't find him or yeah. those other bodies. Yep. Like that was absolutely ridiculous to me and it made me angry. It lacked a bit of levity. The times that they tried to do comedy. Other than fellatio. Well, that, yeah, yeah, that was all right. Um, the rhythm of the whole film was pretty good though. So I actually had it as a nine enjoyable. Wow, man. That's, a, that's higher than me for sure. I don't feel the same way as you on a couple of numbers. First of all, I felt like a lot of parts of this felt slow. It Which agreed. might be the era, but I feel yeah. they still could have put the pace up in some places, maybe shortened some scenes. My single biggest problem with this is that we leave the movie knowing absolutely nothing about the killer other than, like, maybe his name and that he maybe knows someone named Agnes. Like, I get, I think we've talked about the reason behind this. If you leave it to a person's imagination, you assume they will inherently imagine something far more sinister than you can show them. And we see that a lot with, like, creature effects and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you see the full thing, sometimes it's laughable. Sometimes you're like, uh... But with this, it just really did not work for me. I also couldn't handle the Peter character. Mm. Like, whatever his character was or was supposed to be, they pretty much sacrificed it for the sake of faking out the audience. Yeah. Like, the way he acted and the decisions he made would change on a whim depending on where they needed him to be or what they needed him to be doing. I just didn't think it made sense. I will say this was cool as a curiosity, like, for historical purposes. And there's something to be said for doing it first. But... I've just seen a lot of movies that have done this better. I do want to give them credit, though, for the image of Claire in that dry cleaning bag, like mouth open in terror and the bag all over. Like, that's a great image mm -hmm. in the rocking chair in front of the window. That's great shit. And they go to it a few times, and I do like that. But overall, I only had this as a seven enjoyable. All right. Yeah, that's fair. How about so many of these beers we've consumed tonight? <sighs> oh, fuck, man. I mean, having tasted them all, what what was your favorite of the Whippersnapper pack? There's some tasty ones, but uh, I think the Mai Tai New England IPA um, was delicious. I think that one was tremendous. It also has Bing on it, who is my favorite of the Christmas singers. So I would say it's either that or the Santa Baby. This fucking candy cane chocolate yeah. stout was exceptional, too. What would be your favorite of the ones that you got to go down on? So, funnily enough, because I drafted it kind of just to fuck with you and possibly we're going to trade, the salted caramel and coffee uh, English IPA, I really liked that. That was really nice. good. I also really liked my first overall pick, the Mariah Carey, uh, All I Want for Christmas is You, Hello Dolly Bar Pastry Stout was solid, but I think my favorite, and we weren't sure about this ingredient, the Silver Bells Berliner Weiss with Woodruff, 
This just tasted like iced tea to me. I'm I'm and jealous I love of iced tea. Was, it was just a very much you know like alcoholic iced tea. I traded you for this uh, fucking mint and juniper. How is that? It's my least favorite of the oh, ones that I've read. That's too bad. Yeah. So uh, this is a two years in a row I've traded you for something. How is the one I traded you for that? Um, you know what? It's kind of not great either. It's yeah. okay. Like I, I'm, I'm not not enjoying it. And the five percent ABV coming off some of these eights and nines is, yeah. it's good. It feels light. So we um, kind of pass around the other one. How about yeah. this uh, black dog uh, lager? We had to kind of top all this off to to pull it all together here. Really enjoyed it. It was exactly what I was looking for. Coming off of uh, six or five and a half or however the fuck, fuck we drank of these tall. I can't even talk. <laughs> however much we drank of these other tall cans. It's exactly the kind of like clean, light tasting beer that I needed. Ironic as it is a black lager. But no, it was right up my alley. Like it's You know, I'm a lager guy. I, I, I like my beer. It tastes like beer. This is dark, but it doesn't taste dark. So I really enjoyed uh, the black dog. What about you? Yeah, easy to drink. Compared to some of the stuff we've had uh, through this Christmas pack, not that they weren't delicious, they were just a lot more alcoholic. This thing was something that we could definitely crush. So I want to shout out both Curse Brewery and Whippersnapper for these incredible beers. They have put us well beyond what normally makes us coherent. So I hope that this somehow gets stitched together in a coherent way and that you enjoy this episode. Yeah, I totally agree 100%. Uh, Good stuff from both these breweries. Really glad to try the Whippersnapper unfiltered 12-pack. And after trying this Black Dog, I'm very curious to try some more of the uh, Cured Craft Brewing Company beers. So good stuff by both of them. Really appreciate it. Speaking of good stuff, we're going to end off calendar year 2022 and head into our mid-season break with a Sylvester Stallone 80s action classic. We're going to be watching a little film called Cobra. Ooh, this uh, instantly makes me think of uh, some martial arts, but I don't think that's where we're going. Oh, no. This is the one-man war on crime. Picture Stallone in leather jacket, aviator sunglasses, big gun, (laughs) <laughs> just blowing away bad guys you're talking about his arms or his uh fucking pistol here oh no both he's nice. jacked to the gills and he's got a fucking big pistol he's gonna shoot at bad guys oh. <laughs> there's gonna be car chases action romance oh my gosh i'm excited for this i have never seen this of course as most movies we watch on this podcast it's stallone in his element i think he might have even written the screenplay but i can't oh. swear to that well i don't know if i'm Which excited would be- anymore <laughs> <laughs> oh no you better get excited all right i will we're gonna experience that is a canon pictures release oh, okay all the right canon i'll get group. up for it then i can do they're this. always good the canon group dino de laurentis Ooh, i love dino anything put on uh blu-ray by vinegar syndrome those are our three that's our holy trinity right there yeah, pretty much i think I so that. we'll go to the canon group next week for some stallone cobra before then if you have not already please follow us on social media twitter and instagram at the bmb podcast feel free to email us the bmb podcast at gmail.com Absolutely. As we head into our winter break, we're going to want some requests, ideas for the second half of our third season here. Things you'd like to hear us cover or talk about or watch or drink, put into our bodies, you know, whatever. (laughs) Well, that opens the door to a lot of uh, suggestions. We'll open the door to your suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us next week for Cobra. Until then, I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it ringing. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight.